Hi, my name is David Lopez, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey, and this is The Power of Attorney. As the initial podcast, I wanted to do what we're calling David to the Second Power. I wanted to invite a very good friend of mine, a professor here at Rutgers Law School, someone who is almost exactly my same age, so we might get into some conversations about our favorite bands from back in the day. Um, but I'm here with David Trout. David Trout is a distinguished professor of law here at Rutgers. He's also the director for the Center for Law, Inequality, and Metropolitan Equity. Greetings. Thank you. Good to be here with you. Did I get your credentials right? Yes. Was I a good dean? Okay, good. Yes, I'm yes. Glad. Other than the, the acronym, so that, that, that mouthful of letters, of words that constitute the name of the center can be easily condensed to CLIMB. And that's what we'll call it from here on out. We'll call it CLIMB as we talk about the center. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you here, David, is I wanted you to talk about the center, the work that the center is doing in Newark, issues of, of housing nationally, um, the work of uh, Rutgers Law School, Newark as an anchor institution, and just your, your career. But uh, let me help the audience get to know you a little bit better. How long have you been a professor here? This is actually the start of my 24th year. Congratulations. Yeah, which I figure makes me now, um, means I, I started teaching when many of my first year students were just born, if not. Um, which really makes me feel old. Kind of blows your mind. Do you ever find yourself making pop culture references that the students completely miss? Almost daily. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, have to, we have to keep up with it. So how have you enjoyed your time at Rutgers Law School? You've been here for 24 years, so that must say something good about the school. Yeah, no, I've, it's, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 it was a place that I didn't know a lot about before I applied here, and I was told that it was really me, and um, that I should investigate it because there was such an affinity between the school's identity and my professional identity, and this from a person who I didn't even know terribly well. And she was right all those years ago. So, yes, I think that's contributed to my staying power here, that there is such a commonality of principles and interests between me and the school. Well, can you talk about that in terms of what it means for Rutgers Law School to be you? Because I remember when I interviewed here, and I spoke to the faculty. Someone came up to me afterwards and said, that was a real Rutgers story. And I didn't appreciate what that meant until, until I, I started working here. So why don't you talk about what drew you to the school and what, what values you felt you shared with the school? Sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a New York City kid. I'm a Harlem kid. And, um, and I've always had very strong interests in, um, in, in social justice, in civil rights, in um, in, in writing, um, I've always been a writer of all sorts of different kinds of things. I've been an urbanist <clears throat> with a real interest in cities and in my neighborhood. Growing up, um, I had a lot of jobs that were sort of related to, you know, manpower, community development work in Harlem, and that's kind of how I cut my teeth and got my early sense of, of a professional identity and an interest in advocacy. And so eventually, years later, you know, it, 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 I, I wind up in law school assuming that I'll become a civil rights attorney. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't become a civil rights attorney right away, in part because, um, you know, as you know, since we were in law school around the same time, so many of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's um, most important um, civil rights precedent was crushed in the summer of 18, uh, 19, <laughs> that's really dating us, right? 1989. Um, and that really was important for me. I was, I was an intern there that summer and watching grown men and women cry um, quietly in their offices, seeing 20 and 30 years of work go down the drain in an instant was really kind of a wake-up call about um, the fragility of this sort of work and perhaps the necessity of trying to figure out other ways um, to, to, to advance these same goals of, um, of economic justice, of equality, of racial equality. Um, I think there was a greater interest in integration at that time, but that comes and goes. Um, and so um, coming out of law school, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I was spending, I spent a little time in the public interest. 
Um, and then I had to go uh, work off some loans in, in a firm. And it was um, in the firm that I was sort of acquainted with the notion that, you know, if you teach, a few things can happen. You can, through your scholarship, take on those questions of, you know, how do we really refashion our advocacy of human and civil rights um, when it appears that so many of the approaches of the past may not be working for one institutional reason or political reason or another. And the other is that they will pay you to write. And, um, and it was really those two things that, that really captivated me while still in private practice. And it was from there that I began thinking about where to go. But then there was that fit. You know, I, I didn't really imagine myself at a place like Harvard Law School where I had gone to law school. There was just something about the tenor of the place that, that didn't attract me to it as a teaching institution. Both of my parents had taught. My oldest sister is a historian, and she was already an academic by that time. So it wasn't a foreign idea, but I had to think about a place where I could see myself. And so being in Newark, having to, the tradition of social justice, the notion of critical inquiry among scholars is um, a very important and, um, and, and very unique trait, believe it or not. I mean, there, there are so many people in academia who profess an interest in social justice but are, are new to it. Um, they're experimenting with it sort of for the first time. It wasn't in their early experiences. Um, they, they, um, you know, their instincts may not be as well developed. They've been raised in a more conservative intellectual tradition where they're... Um, fearful about raising certain kinds of points and bringing certain kinds of points of view for, for fear of career suicide. And sometimes that fear is well-founded. Um, or because they just cannot find a community, an intellectual community that will take those ideas seriously. And so here was this institution in, uh, in Newark where folks um, explained, look, we're not afraid of any of those things. In fact, we were built on those things. We cherish those things. Um, those things are, are central to our sense of identity, and our identity is as linked to excellence as anything else. You know, um, come and, and think about being a part of this community where we will pay you to write, and we won't critique the nature of your writing as being either too radical or too, um, too critical. Um, remember, this is also the period, sort of the peak of the rise of critical race theory. There were a lot of institutions that pretended to have an interest in it, but frankly were, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally blackballing a lot of critical race theorists. Um, my earliest work was, was closely identified with that. So, um, so it, it, it wound up being a welcoming place with folks who were brilliant and interesting and fun and committed and not afraid to be any of those things. That's wonderful. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with critical race theory, do you want to tell them sort of like the innocent synopsis of what critical race theory is? Well, critical race theory, um, you know, has many different parts to it, and I'm sure, sure that people would describe it differently, but at its essence um, is the recognition of the centrality of race to the law and the recognition that, um, that legal institutions and legal thought, for the most part, is based upon racial hierarchy and that racial hierarchy can be seen to reproduce itself through conventions that oftentimes pretend to be racially neutral. And so um, it has intellectual roots in, um, in postmodernism and structuralism. You know, the, uh, the, the, the uh, CLS folks, critical legal studies folks who sort of predate the uh, race crits but were colleagues with many of them at Harvard Law School where much of it started, you know, uh, were known for deconstruction. So that is really the, the, the sort of analytic tool of looking at a thing and, and assuming that it is not what it appears and that we have to get to its intellectual roots, its ideological commitments, and that so much of it is ideologically committed, oftentimes to the reproduction of, of racial hierarchy, uh, that it is therefore instrumental and, um, and these things need to be carefully exposed through an analysis that, first and foremost, does not take things as they appear. 
And, you know, that's a wildly radical approach if you think about um, how traditional the law tends to be. Even the notion of stare decisis, one of the central tenets of legal analysis, assumes the sort of intellectual um, purity and primacy of the founder's earliest pronouncements. And so even in federalist uh, uh, theory, or especially in federalist theory, you know, the notion of originalism, again, relies upon this notion that what was written 200 years ago, more than 200 years ago, um, is, is, is pure and objective and racially neutral and must be um, adhered to if, if we were to have a system with any sort of integrity and consistency. And so the race crits and other crits really have, have said, well, you know, all of that is probably true at some level, but the point is, it's not accidental that it continues to reproduce racial, economic, and gender inequality, because in many respects, that is part of the intellectual program behind so many of those cherished um, institutional ideals. And so in order to make those ideals real, we really do have to fearlessly deconstruct them, figure out where they go awry, and then it becomes an open question debated among race crits, you know, can the system be saved? I happen to think it, it probably can, and that, I'm not sure, puts me in the majority or a minority. One thing that I found really fascinating about the history of Rutgers Law School is that in 1970, um, a group of students, um, a group of students with the Association of Black Law Students um, raised critiques about legal education that really, I think, in many ways foreshadowed some of the critical theory that came many years later. And these are 25-year-old kids, and they're basically saying, look, you know, the legal education um, is not really connecting to everybody in the community. The law school is not including everybody in the community. It's a public institution that needs to do better. And I thought that was really fascinating about the history and sort of the platform of the school. Mm -hmm. um, what do you teach? So I teach um, a little bit less than I used to um, since taking on uh, the center, which is a lot of my time. But I teach torts in the first year, and I teach a class that in many respects was the intellectual um, um, grandfather of the, of the center itself. And that's a class that has been renamed many times since I started it 24 years ago, but it is now Race, Class, and Metropolitan Equity. And beyond that, I also, um, I love intellectual property and I love business torts and I haven't had a chance to teach those subjects in a few years, but uh, I love that stuff too. And I've written on those subjects as well. Now, do the students believe you're a kind teacher? What do the students say in the hallway about Professor Trout? They, you know, I mean, they mostly bow down and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of kissing and hugging. And I, I say, come on, come on, we can't do that. Um, no, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I, it's, the, the way that students perceive me um, has changed over the years and then changes over the years. And by that I mean, um, I think when I first came in, I was known for being pretty tough. I'd, I'd been um, in, in, a, in a large law firm. I learned a lot in a large law firm, surprisingly. Um, I learned not to fear money and I learned some very good professional norms and I learned how difficult lawyers can be. And so it was especially that last piece that, that helped me sort of recognize what my students needed from me. They didn't need coddling. They didn't need me to, you know, sort of um, excuse their mistakes. They needed me to challenge them. And they needed me to create a safe space in which to do that so that they would become practiced in being challenged and thinking at that level in a setting that might be uncomfortable so that when they finally left school, they would be comfortable doing it. And in a way it was, you know, I think all of us teach in a way to avenge the failures of our own experience in the classroom. And so I was trying to make, make good on that. And I think it was, you know, it's always been um, received a little bit differently. I'm sure I've softened up quite a bit, but, um, you know, I think, I think two things have happened. One, one is that um, I do sense that my approach for at least this generation of students seems to be better received and maybe I'm, you know, maybe I am softening up or maybe I'm just getting better, you know, I, I hope I'm getting better. The other thing is that um, 
especially since moving to New Jersey from Brooklyn um, a, a few years back, I bump into former students all the time. Sometimes, you know, like in the produce aisle, aisle in, in, in the supermarket. And I can't tell you how many of them actually come to me and say, you know, Professor Trout, thank you. You know, thank you for being the way you were with me. I used to hate you, you know? I used to really think you had it in for me. And I just thought you were this, that, and the other thing. And, and they say this, you know, right there while I'm like holding lemons. And, and they, you know, and, and then they say, but you know, really, I, I say this only because you were right. I did need that. You know, I was young and I had no idea what this was about. And I didn't realize what a difficult profession this is. And, you know, that you were really loving us through that approach. Because uh, it wouldn't have done me any favors for you to be soft on us. So... That's, that's my sense, and uh, it may be a little self-serving, but, you know, that's, that's my assessment so far. Well, I did have a group of students tell me last year that if there was any professor they wanted to get to know better, it was Professor Trout. Oh, wow. So I, really? thought, that, I thought that was pretty interesting. So there is a little bit of a mystique out there. Oh, that's cool. Um, do you want to talk about your scholarship? Sure. Um, I know it's, you know, you've been, you've been a scholar for 25 years, so I know it's gone in many different directions, but do you want to talk about some of the areas that you're particularly passionate about? Yeah, well, you know, the scholarship um, has always been very important to me. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't realize how much I would love writing scholarship. I, I write a lot of nonfiction that's not scholarship. I write fiction. Um, we'll get to that know, in a second. And, you know, I write, I write op-eds and, you know, sort of some, some editorial journalism. Um, you know, but scholarship was actually not something that I did a ton of before I started teaching, which is a little unusual, uh, at least nowadays. And I really came to embrace it and have a lot of fun with it um, because it was a way to explore those questions that, as I mentioned earlier, were just not clear. I mean, how do we pursue, do we, do we pursue a rights agenda? Do we pursue, you know, uh, economic justice do we pursue things in isolation? Do we think about poverty by itself, as so many scholars seem to do, or do we do it through a comparative lens? You know, um, how theoretical can we be? How important is it to be empirical? You know, what is the relationship between, um, between uh, legal scholarship and other kinds of scholarship? And so I have found over the years that I've, you know, really had to experiment and, and uh, do a little trial and error um, I'm, I tend to be asking the same questions, which are always, you know, so how do we get from here to there? You know, we have this set of ideals. We recognize that marginalization is uh, too prominent a feature of the lives of uh, particular people in this country. Um, that it, you know, that that um, that certain kinds of 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 hardship and injustices, while they fall on all of us, fall disproportionately. On, 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 on certain communities, you know, with a, a horrifying consistency in the pattern. And we have to break that, you know. So, so if the law is as powerful as I hope it is, there's got to be something in our thinking that can help to both name the problem and, um, and, and, and offer real solutions that have impact. And so moving toward impact has been... You know, earlier in my career, I was much more interested in naming the problem, and now I'm much more interested in, in trying to um, figure out how to have impact. But, but one other thing I'll, I'll just say about scholarship generally that I really love um, is um, the more interdisciplinary scholarship I read, the, um, the more uh, proud I am to be a legal scholar. And I say that with utmost respect to people in other fields, and I rely on their work tremendously. It's indispensable. We really can't, as lawyers, do the work that we intend to do within the vacuum of the law. So everything we do, if we're good lawyers, I think is interdisciplinary. But there is a set of norms in most other scholarship, particularly very empirical scholarship, that um, is fearful of drawing conclusions and suggesting um, uh, remedies. And so other areas of law tend to shy from, from prescription. They're much better at description and analysis, but not, and now what should we do? Right. 
And lawyers don't get paid unless they say what we should do. And thank God for that, because imagine we, we would just never be able to move the ball if it wasn't in our instinct to begin every act of scholarship by thinking through a problem to some possible solution. And, and, and that solution, and recognizing that solution is probably one among many, and that we may ultimately be trying. I mean, it's almost like pleading in the alternative, you know, the notion that we, we even do that, you know, that we, 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 we try to reach the same objective through three or four different theories of recovery, you know, and then we can be as creative in, in, you know, in sort of intellectually litigating an issue on the question of remedy, because there may be multiple ways, short-term, long-term, sideways, front ways, you know, to get to um, some sense of progress. So I, I, I very much appreciate that, and I take that approach to lawyering as a central tenet of my scholarship. That's wonderful. Do you want to talk about Klein? Sure. Do you, um, if you don't mind, can you place it in the context of some of the other centers that are going on at Newark, at, at, at uh, Rutgers Newark, and really this whole idea of community-engaged scholarship and Rutgers Newark as an anchor institution? Sure, yeah. So, so the Center on Law and Equality and Metropolitan Equity is a law school-based multidisciplinary center that is um, committed to the study of, um, of structural inequality and to um, impact-based um, remedies. And, and, I, and, and so let me unpack that a little bit. So, you know, in, we're all alarmed by inequality. We recognize that inequality can be benign inequality, like the differences in height, um, or it can be malign um, uh, inequality like that produced by racial prejudice or something like that. And so the first, the first thing we're trying to understand about inequality is what kind it is and therefore, you know, uh, why it's insidious when it's insidious, what, what, what produces it. Um, and then we're also interested in, in whether or not inequality is kind of a short-term situation or whether it has legs. And so when we think about inequality in structural terms, we are making an assumption that inequality will be consistently sustained. It will be reproduced through structures. And what does that mean? Well, for most people, that tends to mean racism, um, economic exploitation, um, you know, uh, gender discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, the, the, the big isms of our time and the last two generations. I prefer to think of structural inequality as, um, as combining all of those things. I am as much interested in, in racial discrimination and economic discrimination as the next person, but I don't frame it in that way. I frame it as structural inequality. I frame structural inequality as being primarily place-based. And so what place has done is that it's become the repository for racial and economic disadvantage. So all the things that we know about racial disadvantage and, and economic disadvantage, not all of the things, but, but about 90% of what we know about those things wind up being reproduced where we live. And so the notion of place-based discrimination is critically important because well, first of all, it's not obvious. And discrimination flourishes where it is not obvious. Um, it also reminds us that when we're thinking about structure, we're thinking about two things. We're thinking about the location in which our lives are lived and our advantages or our disadvantages are actually meted out. They're brokered in place. And they're also brokered, the second part of it is they are brokered through our interaction with institutions, right? So, so what I'm trying to teach my students, my, my fellows, you know, who work for CLIMB, and in framing the research questions that we take on, is we are sort of going back to why a phrase like location, location, location always means so much for people. 
It means so much for people because it is a real estate phrase used to as a shorthand for the good life. Where do good opportunities lie? Excuse me. Well, when one is purchasing a home, which is the primary asset that any wealth acquiring American will ever have in their life and which will enable them to continue to build wealth that can be passed on to generations and which is central to the notion of a middle-class ideal. They want to be in the best possible neighborhood. Well, why do they want to be in the best possible neighborhood? Because they want their property values to increase. They want, they want this asset to grow in value. Well, how does it grow in value? Well, it's proximity to other nice people and to good institutions. Like what? Like schools, like transportation, like economic development options, like whether or not it's a food desert, like the relationship to law enforcement, like the relationship to recreation, whether or not there's good healthcare nearby, whether or not it's got proximity to employment, on and on and on. So you see how location then becomes the centerpiece to our connection to all the institutions that are deemed to confer opportunity on each of us. So if we want the good life, we need to be in the good place because the good place has the good institutions. Okay, a lot of those institutions exist in not such good places. The same institutions are producing totally different outcomes for human beings who through the accident of birth and other things wind up living in one place or the other. Why is that? That's the central inquiry, right? So from a lawyer's standpoint, what we want to understand is what is different about institutional rules, laws, norms, and practices in each of these places. How come if I grow up in the Irvington School District, I stand statistically a much lower probability of attending a four-year college as if I grow up in the Milburn School District, you know, five miles away? What is so radically different about these two places? It's the quality and the resources available to those crucial institutions. And so that basic idea, that framework, helps to dictate how climb looks at things. So we look at, for instance, how child welfare might operate very differently in Newark versus in Chatham, you know, how the very same rules are interpreted differently, are practiced differently, are subject to different norms of interpretation, such that poor families subject to the child welfare system in Newark will, by statistical probability, experience much more draconian outcomes than the same family experiencing those kinds of things. Of course, a much smaller percentage of them in, in a much wealthier place like Chatham. And you can do that institution by institution by institution. The sum total of it are what we call life chances. Why is that important to us? Because ultimately, CLIMB is about increasing in an equitable way the life chances of every single person and increasing their dignity. And it's a central principle of law. It's a central principle mm -hmm. of the work. Now, how does the work sort of fit more broadly, so, you know, the law school did not really have a tradition of law school centers. Um, we've been encouraged a few times to think about it, uh, but CLIMB is actually the first. There was one um, a few years before I started CLIMB, and it, it, I think it lasted about two or three years, and then it was gone. And, and so it was, it was a little bit of a struggle to broach this idea here where there wasn't an institutional history of doing what plenty of other schools by that time had done. They were these, these law school centers, these even interdisciplinary centers across university departments were proliferating across the country. And, and frankly, we were a little slow to it. So it, you know, we had some growing pains figuring out how it was gonna work and what the relationship was going to be like to the communities that we wanted to focus on. Because the notion of being, um, of doing anchor work, meaning, being an institution that has um, strong ties to a community and sees itself um, in relation to those communities that, um, that, that, that we are equals, that we um, have an obligation to be engaged, that their welfare is our welfare and vice versa. This notion that I, I sometimes write about 
as a, a sense of, of, of institutional mutuality, um, you know, was something that, that had to be developed outside of the clinical context. So law schools will do that primarily through, through their clinical work, and ours, our clinics are among the best in the country. So there was kind of a sense that, well, why should Rutgers Law School, you know, which has pioneered so many terrific clinics, is out in the community all the time, recognizes its engagement to lots of folks in need. Why, why do we need to do it in this way? Well, because this way is also much more rooted in scholarship. And scholarship, for reasons I, I, I discussed earlier, allows you to explore problems in a, in a different way. Um, it, it may be lawyer-like in ways. It may not be so lawyer-like in ways. Um, and so, and so, so this, this, this notion had to be forged. Fortunately, this notion of, of, of anchor engagement uh, coincided with the hiring of our chancellor, uh, Nancy Cantor, who is really one of the national leaders on what it means to create um, anchor, anchor institution um, or, 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 or publicly or public scholarship or, 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 or civically engaged institutional connections up and down universities across departments. Um, I mean, so I really got educated about the possibilities when she came on and she was fortunate I think, to find an ally at the law school in me, just as she found allies across the university in different departments. And so, um, and so that synergy really fed its growth. And once we were able to grow here, I think more and more people uh, thought, well, wow, we, we, we can do that too. Um, we've got interests that lend themselves to the development of centers. Um, so a few more centers came on. And then Nancy said, well, look, this is going great. This is part of the strategic plan. And let's actually uh, try to hire for that purpose. And so we actually brought on um, 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 a couple of faculty members most recently as laterals who um, are very experienced in their fields and who were sort of center ready. And so now that's sort of been the, the path of development for centers at the law school. So um, I know through CLIMB, you're very involved um, with the city of Newark, and I want to talk about that. Rutgers Law School has always been a national and international institution, but Rutgers um, Law School in Newark has always been very, at least since 1968, has been very engaged in the community of Newark. And I've learned, um, as someone who came from Arizona through Washington, D.C., that Newark is an incredibly interesting, incredibly dynamic um, community. I know our former mayor, Cory Booker, always talks about Newark as being America's greatest comeback story. Um, I think the truth is probably very complex because it remains a very dynamic city. And right now, the city is going through um, to what many people on the outside view as an economic renaissance in the downtown area but you've been involved in some of the issues that are related to that renaissance. Do you want to talk about the community and, and the work that you're doing um, in Newark? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me say, first of all, about Newark. Wow, what a fantastic place this is. Now, I knew that because I've been here a long time, but, um, but I, I haven't had the, the sort of um, intimate knowledge of, of how the city works at multiple levels and in different parts um, until the last few years when I've worked much more directly with this mayoral administration, um, the mayoral administration of Ras Baraka, um, fo which followed uh, Cory Booker's administration. So um, this, is, this, is, this is a working class city in a state that doesn't care for its cities. And among its cities um, that it holds in contempt, it probably has the greatest amount of contempt, uh, if not out and out, um, hatred for the city of Newark. And the irony in that is that it sits in Essex County with the greatest amount of inequality, the, the highest highs and lowest lows in the state. And so many New Jersey, New Jerseyans have come through Newark. So they have that sort of love-hate relationship of somebody who actually has historical roots here. They have grandparents who grew up in Newark, you know, who fled Newark. They have a, a visceral relationship to, you know, those who call it riots you know, versus those who call it an uprising in 1967. And so 
you know, so Newark is fascinating. I mean, it has a fascinating history way before that, but it has a fascinating history as a sort of a, a fulcrum of, 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 of urban America and um, the development of urbanism, the problems of urbanism, the promise of urbanism, and the various groups that have participated in the making of, of, uh, of urban life, uh, as well as suburban life, right? So Newark also has to be seen in the context of the community's um, that are immediately around it. And, and it has been hurt by those communities. Um, so much of the poverty, the lack of resources, the, um, the, the, the weak institutional capacity of so uh, much that is Newark and has been Newark City government on behalf of, you know, um, a population that is, that, is, that is poor to working class and, and overwhelmingly of, co of color. Um, you know, has a lot to do with the location of the city vis-a-vis -vis much wealthier uh, jurisdictions, suburban jurisdictions around it, and, and, and the particular dynamics of localism in New Jersey. I write a lot about localism. I won't get all into localism right now, except to say that, um, you know, localism has been the sort of non-racial uh, uh, jurisprudential uh, successor to Jim Crow segregation. And segregation is one of those processes, racial and economic, that, um, that is behind the, the structure of inequality. Nothing helps to sustain inequality like segregation. And so the fact that Newark has been so poor and has uh, struggled so much to provide affordable housing for its very low income residents is directly relevant to the amount of largesse and abundance in the immediately surrounding suburbs that want no part of it. And so it has been the repository for the regions you know, unwanted. Now, with that background, right, you can imagine the regional hostility to Newark on economic grounds, and you can imagine the struggle that any mayor of Newark and, and any city council of Newark is going to have over the years fighting for resources to provide for what is an overwhelmingly needy population that cannot go anywhere else. This is a story of American cities, but it's particularly a story of, of, of New Jersey cities. And so finally, we're seeing global capital come to these cities, not just the legacy cities of New York and San Francisco and DC and Boston, but to cities that are considered more satellite. Newark is and has been always perfectly poised for a renaissance and it's been promised every year for the last 40 years, right? We've got a port, we've got an airport, we've got Amtrak, we've got New Jersey Transit directly into New York City. We couldn't be closer. Why hasn't it come? Beats me, right? So everybody scratches their head. Cory Booker, suggest, his, his rise as mayor suggests that it's coming, and it still doesn't come. And only now are we really beginning to see the kind of economic investment in downtown Newark that so many people predicted would happen. And the question is, what does it mean for Newarkers? Does it mean that the city will gentrify? that we will see the latest form of segregation come to urban places where the same outcome, greater resources to whites and Asians, fewer resources to blacks and Latinos, um, will just reproduce itself on an urban landscape just as it has through the suburbs or the suburbs versus the cities for the last 50 years? Or will it mean something else? And so we were asked to help the city think about something we call equitable growth. How do you grow in a way that ensures that the current residents of Newark, not the future residents that it wants, right? But the current residents of Newark are able to enjoy the benefits of increased economic growth. And what are the, the, the obligations of city government as a steward of those future outcomes. And that is the work that we are doing in terms of housing, in terms of um, right to counsel, um, in terms of the, the, the for, for indigent tenants, in terms of rent control reform, 
in terms of neighborhood development planning and in terms of participation on something new called the Equitable Growth Advisory Commission. So what we're trying to do essentially is to build multiple institutions or, or, or increase the capacity of existing institutions within city government in order to have a multi-pronged approach to doing something that very few cities have done, and that is to grow in an equitable fashion that does not forget the marginalized residents who have been there for generations. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's really interesting because you said very few cities have done it, and I know that there's some you know, pretty well-known cautionary tales about cities that have not done it at all, where the gentrification displaced the community. Are there any model cities that you're looking at, or is Newark really on the cusp of being the leader um, in terms of issues of equitable growth? Um, it, it is on the cusp of being a leader here, and that's part of what's so exciting about it. No, there are very few models. Um, no city in the United States that I can think of has gotten all of this or most of this right. And most of them that when presented with the chance to gobble up new resources and particularly global capital, but even significant investment domestically, you know, behind some sort of economic transformation toward tech or toward some other industry, have, have, have gobbled it up and only um, looked back later in hindsight and thought, oh, I wish we had done more to make sure that we didn't increase the risk of displacement for so many people, to make sure that our development strategy was more inclusive of the people who were actually here, to take advantage of these new resources in ways that finally help us to overcome the tremendous tax-based disadvantages that we've been faced with because the rest of the, the region didn't want these people and we were the only place affordable uh, to them. So, so no, there are places that have done a bit of this or a bit of that. Um, you know, Stockton is experimenting with the universal basic income. New York City was the first to come up with the right to counsel. San Francisco's since passed an ordinance. Philadelphia's toying with the idea. You know, what's interesting is that even those, those cities I just named, not, with the exclusion of, of Stockton, uh, Stockton's gotten help in other ways, but, but those, those cities I just named, you know, folks will come into those relatively flush cities, San Francisco, New York, and Philadelphia, and they will lend, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of free consulting services to show them how they can create a right to counsel that makes economic sense. We have to do that for the city of Newark. I mean, we also do it pro bono. But the point being that those, those even that sense of institutional capacity, that expertise that exists in national organizations will not come to a Newark. They're only now for the first time coming to Newark and they suddenly rush in in the same way that they did with education when Mark Zuckerberg put $100 million up and suddenly every foundation wanted to be part of Newark education. But for the most part, you know, big cities will attract resources they don't need and poor cities like Newark will not. And part of this, the, the, the central commitment as an anchor institution that Rutgers makes to the city of Newark is we are you and you are us and we will lend our expertise. And, you know, as dean, um, I'm, you know, I care about the experience of the students. I also love Newark very much. And what I've noticed is that um, our students are becoming increasingly engaged in the city of Newark and aggressively, I think, working to dislodge um, I think pernicious narratives about the city um, and they're working in the city and that really makes, you know, makes me happy um, to see that people are coming to Rutgers Law School because of Newark. Um, and I think that that is a sign of progress for, for, for uh, both the university and for the city if we do it right. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful thing and we're really just beginning. Um, you know, we have, we have a long way to go. There's so much to be a part of. There's so much to learn about. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's natural for young people to gravitate towards cities now. I think it's always been the case. But, you know, we hear much more talk of it now. It makes sense. Um, and Newark is becoming more vital and attractive to younger people. But my hope is, back to the beginning of this conversation, 
that um, that you're right that that people don't just come here because of the possibility of new bars downtown, you know, and hip places to be seen, but um, and and possibly employed, but also, you know, because of their 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 wish to be part of an organic community that is truly inclusive, um, and that is, as a friend of mine puts it, struggling well. I mean, this has always been a city of struggle, of tremendous character, of strong, interesting, fascinating people, of all the contradictions of American society running through it. Um, and um, and it, it, is, it is a city of so many proud people who have been through so much for the, for the most part. And it is very important for folks to come to it and learn how to join that right. rather than to transform that. Right. And that's, I think, the challenge of us as educators at this law school. Um, now, I think our listeners probably think that, you know, because we definitely got into some, into some pretty deep um, topics. Um, and so I want to make sure our listeners don't think that we're just like, you know, these like completely intense, geeky guys. We're, oh, also, no. we're, all, we're also fun. Um, and so I want you to talk. You, you write fiction. You want to talk a little bit about um, your fiction? Sure. Um, other hobbies you might have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's see. So <laughs> the other David Trout. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 other David Trout. Well, David Trout is a drummer. Uh, I've been playing drums since I was a little little tiny guy, and um, you know drums and percussion, and I um, I still love that very much. In fact, there's some talk now of creating a law school faculty band, and so we will we will see. You know, we were about to begin that, and then uh, we were, for want of a bass player, that effort fell off in the spring, but we promised to, to start it back up again. And, of course, U.S. News and World Report won't credit that either. No, right, <laughs> like, they're right. I mean, what do they credit that we do? You know, we, we have to write our own. Um, and, uh, and, yes, I write a lot of fiction um, in, in, a, in an age when um, it's increasingly difficult to write fiction. You know, fiction for me has... has probably been my first love and um, maybe the hardest thing that I do. Um, but interestingly enough, I've, I've been able to, to incorporate my love of fiction with my work. So, you know, um, I, have a, I have one published novel and one set of... Uh, What's the name of the novel? The novel is The Importance of Being Dangerous. The and Importance of Being Dangerous. Yes, it's a romantic thriller. Um, but it's got some very strong um, 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 political themes in it. Um, you know, my first book is called The Monkey Suit, short fiction on African-Americans and justice. And, and actually, that, that's, those short stories are all based upon legal controversies. But my idea there was that, you know, we don't really know who any of these people really were. I mean, we understand Matt versus Ohio and the precedent you know, setting circumstances there and, 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 you know, how it changed search and seizure law. But we don't understand privacy from the standpoint of the people who actually lived those horrific experiences. And what if we did? You know, what, 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 what might that have looked like historically? Um, if we were just, you know, just thinking about those lives. And, and so it was important for me to try through fiction to recreate those lives I mean, it's still fiction in the sense that it is still designed to take you away as a reader, to be good and interesting in terms of plot and character development and story. Um, but it was also sort of, you know, in, its, in a subversive way, it was also designed to open up a world you might not otherwise have thought about for the purposes of thinking a little bit differently about these, these ideas, these, these, even these legal principles. And then the most recent novel, um, which I just finished and, and haven't found a, a publishing home for, you know, is, is, is very much a book about family and about fathering. And, and I am a father of uh, two daughters who are terrific and challenging and wonderful. And, you know, I have an amazing partner in my wife and, you know, and I, in, in middle age, you know, find that there's so much to either learn or relearn, and there's so much that we were once confident about that we reevaluate. And so it's, it's a constant experience of discovery and self-discovery. And so I try to project some of that into the book. But the book is also, you know, from the, from the perspective of a protagonist who's a, a grieving 
father. He is he is a father who has lost his father. Um, you know, he he winds up in an environment. You know, he's a high school principal in which most of his students are grieving in some way. And so the work that Climb has done on psychological trauma has really gotten under my skin. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I write about it in scholarship and I see it as a symptomatology of structural inequality. And I can talk all day about that stuff. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, the experience of psychological trauma is, is, says so much about human beings you know, and it, it can be explored in so many important ways because at the root of all that pain is the organism's attempt neurobiologically, psychologically to adapt to difficult circumstances, which is, you know, what life is about. And it makes for, I hope, really good storytelling. So, um, so that's what that book is about. But it, it really did, oddly enough, flow out of the work that I do you know, um, in the classroom and in the scholarship and, and through climb. And so I guess the, the, the bottom line with all of this is, you know, if those kids want to have lunch with me and learn what an old man is really thinking, you know, um, I'm happy to do it because uh, I'm constantly learning about how to integrate, you know, the work that we do, the pleasures that we have off to the side, the families that we sustain, you know, and the identities that we are constantly working to improve. David Trout, Distinguished Professor of Law, thank you. I uh, think you were the perfect inaugural guest. Oh, for thank podcast. you for having me. It's really my pleasure, David. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School, offering a world-class, diverse faculty of passionate teachers and scholars and an alumni network more than 20,000 members strong around the globe. Rutgers Law has an extensive reach in the legal community. Learn more about our close-knit law school communities in Camden and Newark by visiting law.rutgers.edu.